This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. All right, let's take a look at the opening verses of 1 Corinthians. And this is how the letter begins. Paul, called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, as we begin tonight, the last two weeks we've been doing introduction, and so we do need to just wrap up one other matter of introduction, and that is uh, the issue of uh, the outline of 1 Corinthians. Nathan, if you can throw that up there for me. Um, The book of 1 Corinthians actually is uh, somewhat nicely divided into four parts. You have the opening, and then... uh, the two major parts, response to the reports is one ten through 6.20, and then response to the Corinthian questions is 7.1 through 15.58, and then we have a closing in uh, chapter 16. Now, a more detailed outline, and this would be from your notes from last week, um, you'll notice that in the opening there's two parts. There's the salutation, which we'll cover tonight, and then there's the thanksgiving, which is verses 4 to 9. What's interesting is that uh, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul actually skips the thanksgiving altogether because he is so irritated with the Galatians. Here, although there is a level of irritability with the Corinthians, he at least actually gives thanks to God for them. Now, what's going to be be notable is that in the uh, introduction, in the salutation and the thanksgiving, basically all of the themes, the major themes that Paul's going to cover in the whole letter are actually embedded right there in those verses, all right? The second major, or actually there are two major parts. The uh, response to the reports, remember we said that there were uh, reports from Chloe's people, and Paul says no less than three times, it's actually reported, or I've heard it reported. And so here is his response to the reports. And basically, through this section, Paul's going to maintain uh, a pretty solid, um, unified argument, especially the first four chapters. And so Paul's going to deal with division in the name of wisdom, and then his uh, his his antidote for that is going to be the gospel as God's folly. The Corinthians love their wisdom, their Sophia. Paul is actually going to turn it completely on its head and actually show them that God's folly, which is really his wisdom, is the cross of Jesus. And uh, wisdom is God's wisdom is revealed by the Spirit. He's then going to de- uh, deal with division and carnality. You might remember there's a party spirit, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. He's going to deal with the division. Then he's going to talk about actually what true gospel ministers and true gospel ministry looks like, what, what you build with in order to pass final judgment. And then a, a warning to church wreckers, warning against false wisdom, 
And then Paul gives um, uh, an extended exposition of his own apostleship and servanthood in chapter 4, fatherly exhortation and warning, and then, um, then he deals basically with three issues that must have been also reported to him. One is the incestuous uh, man and the discipline, then the correction over litigation, right? You had Christians that were taking each other to court. Paul obviously hears about that, and then correction over sexual immorality. And so, <clears throat> one through six, he's dealing with the reports that he's heard. Then if you go to the next slide, Nathan. Seven through 15, basically, he's dealing with response to the Corinthian questions. You'll remember that the Corinthians had sent him a letter asking him a series of questions. We know that because Paul actually starts off chapter 7 by saying, now concerning the things which you have written to me, questions you've asked me, basically. And so there's going to be questions concerning marriage. And then notice 8, 9, 10, and 11, one huge chunk, actually deals with questions concerning food offered to idols, and Paul's going to deal with love and liberty as the two principles. Um, Instruction uh, to men and women in worship, uh, there's an asterisk by that because it doesn't appear that that was actually a question, although Paul does, that's where he deals with head coverings, by the way. And then correction of abuses at the Lord's Supper, that also has an asterisk because that was not a question, that actually is based on a report. So you see it's not nice and neatly divided. Then questions concerning uh, gifts of the Spirit and then correction regarding the resurrection. And uh, Paul is going to address the issue that the, a number of Corinthians were denying that there would be a resurrection of believers. Right? Uh, probably they did not deny the resurrection of Jesus but they denied the resurrection, future resurrection of believers. And so Paul makes that argument there. And then, of course, the closing is in three parts, a collection, uh, travel plans, final exhortation, and benediction. And so that is, uh, that's the outline. And actually, 1 Corinthians uh, outlines pretty neatly compared to uh, other uh, books from Paul. And so let's take a look now at the, uh, at the actual uh, salutation. And it's been pointed out many, many times that the uh, salutation that Paul uses follows a conventional form that would have been well known in the ancient world. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. For those of you that actually still get mail delivered to your address you'll know that on the envelope, there's a standard form, right? You're, you're pretty much not free just to put, like, who you're sending it to anywhere on the envelope. You have to put it in a certain place. And then what else do you do in the upper left-hand corner? You let the people know who it's from. In a real sense, Paul is f- following the standardized formula for an epistle. But what he does is Paul gets a hold of this very standardized form takes uh, Jewish elements, Greek elements, and then Christianizes the whole thing. And so there are no throwaway lines for Paul, by the way. Everything that he writes is incredibly intentional and important. And so we begin with, um, I joked last week that we'd only get to Paul. That's not true. You know who Paul is. Um, 
And so here's Paul identifying himself as the one who is sending the letter. Now, of course, the apostle, by this time, has probably been a believer for nearly 20 years. Um, Remember that Saul of Tarsus is uh, radically converted on the Damascus Road. And how does that conversion take place? It takes place because Paul actually encounters the resurrected Jesus, all right? And what is Paul's intention as Saul of Tarsus? What's his intention as he's heading to Damascus? Well, it is to uh, arrest as many Christians as possible. He has letters from uh, the, the Sanhedrin coming from Jerusalem. He is on a mission. I've, I've noted this before, but it, it is worth bearing, repeating, because <clears throat> do we have any indication whatsoever that Saul of Tarsus was somehow in some sort of internal agony of conscience over what he was doing? And the answer is no. In fact, we know from Paul's own writings that he was doing what he was doing, which was actually persecuting the church, being a blasphemer against Christ, and actually a murderer. That is, throwing in, casting his votes in those occasions where the Jews decided to bypass Roman law and actually stone people, all right, starting with Stephen. Paul actually believed that as he was doing those things, he was doing what? He was serving God. Okay. This isn't a guy that went home at night and tossed and turned on his bed and had matters of conscience thinking, oh my goodness, what am I doing? He was doing what he did with a clear conscience. That's important because what happens on the road to Damascus is that Saul of Tarsus is radically changed and now is turned 180 degrees. And the explanation, the only explanation for that is that, the, is that Saul of Tarsus actually encountered the resurrected living Christ. This <clears throat> Saul of Tarsus's conversion <clears throat> is just as radical as if Osama bin Laden would have been converted. He was, he was so completely sold out and had so utterly rejected Jesus as Israel's Messiah that he was going to put a stop to this new sect which he felt was a, an affront to the traditions of the fathers. Filled with hatred, filled with murder, and Jesus Christ appears to him and radically changes him forever. It's actually quite humorous to think at times what Jesus does with Saul of Tarsus because not only does he make him into a Christian, but he also makes him into the apostle to the Gentiles. (laughs) This is is actually very funny because if... Anything we would have known about Saul of Tarsus is not only was he a zealot for the traditions of the fathers, but he also would have maintained the same racial uh, uh, animosity towards Gentiles that would have marked anybody that would have been zealous 
a Pharisee, so forth. And so here is, here is the guy with the equivalent of probably two PhDs who is now sent to the barbarians and the Gentiles. And um, I've often thought, and this is probably just my own wild imagination, I'll have to ask Peter and Paul when we get to heaven, but I've often thought that maybe Paul had conversations with the Lord that kind of went like this. You know, Lord, Peter's preaching to the Jews and to the circumcision. You realize he's from Galilee. He's a fisherman. I think that I'm better equipped to do what he's doing. But God has his ways, doesn't he? God has his ways. And so here's Saul of Tarsus, now Paul. It's very interesting. He does not use his Hebrew name, Saul. That uh, is abandoned in, in Acts 13. He chooses his Hellenized name, his Greek name, Paulos, which meant small. It's very possible that he was given that name. It's very possible that maybe even at birth... Um, he was given that name because of maybe he was maybe he was tiny when he was born or sickly. I remember meeting a doctor in Zambia whose name was Grave. And the reason his name was Grave was because when he was born, he was so sickly, his dad walked in, looked at him and said, well, here's one for the grave and turned around and walked out. And that was the boy's name for the rest of his life. And now he's a pediatrician and a surgeon and uh, obviously. So I imagine maybe Paul's dad walked in and goes, hmm, well, we're na- we'll name him after the first king of Israel, but we better give him a nickname. That is small. And so it's interesting that he takes his, his name Paul, not after the majestic, <laughs> majestic king of Israel, but rather the tiny guy. Now, <clears throat> Notice how Paul describes himself. He's called an apostle of Christ. And um, some of our translations will throw in a word, like the NAS puts as, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The text just says Paul, apostle, or called apostle. And uh, for Paul, the idea of calling... All right, which, by the way, he's going to mention a number of times in 1 Corinthians, always has the idea of effectual call. Paul, Paul does not use the word call in, in, the, in the sense of a general call, but he always uses that in, the, in terms of, of an effective call. And so for Paul, there is a sense in which when the call of God comes, it comes with the power of the Holy Spirit so that it is effective in accomplishing its purpose. So as, as, as he looked at his own conversion, he was called. This is not just a vocational calling, like Paul chose a vocation to be an apostle, and that now was his calling. This has the idea of the power of the Holy Spirit coming and actually taking him from an enemy of Christ now to a friend of Christ, a follower of Christ, a preacher of Christ. And so this idea of calling has this idea of of, of the power of God in making us alive, changing our hearts. And for Paul, 
his own sense of personal calling and his own call to apostleship always coalesce. And in a real sense, what happens to Paul on the Damascus Road is not only his call to become a follower of Jesus, but it is also accompanied with his call to be an apostle. Okay? And so for Paul, his, uh, his own following Jesus and his apostleship are actually brought together. Now, when he says apostle, apostle actually just simply means one who is sent, all right? And for Paul, he understood very clearly that Christ had called him and sent him to do what? Well, to preach Christ. We see that in one seventeen that Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach, all right? And so, um, what is the qualification, of course, to be an apostle? Not anybody could be an apostle. You had to be an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus in order to be qualified to be an apostle. And then you needed to be actually directly called by Christ to be an apostle. So you had, you had the 12, and Paul actually views his own apostleship in, in, in the words of 1 Corinthians 15 as one who was untimely born or born out of due season, Right? And so, but here he is, he actually, he understands, he he says with humility in 1 Corinthians 15, I am the least of the apostles, okay? His own past, his own sins, he understood that there was a sense in which he was the least of the apostles, but nevertheless, he says in chapter 9, am I not an apostle with the expectation of the answer, yes. Have I not seen the risen Christ? Yes. And so here's Paul, who is actually an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ via the Damascus road, and here he is called to be an apostle. Now, this means that, first of all, there are no more capital A apostles today. You understand that, right? And yet, multitudes claim to be apostles. It's actually impossible. But when we think of apostle, or look at those who claim to be apostles today, there is this grand demonstration of authority, this uh, this sense of self-importance. But for Paul, being an apostle was not something that gave him a status that put him above everybody else. Now, he understands that there is authority with apostleship, but for Paul, apostleship was never a way to uh, self-promote. For Paul, apostleship was never a way to do one-upsmanships on people. For Paul, the idea of being an apostle, simply in the words of Anthony Thistleton, provided an opportunity to present Christ uninterrupted. That's the way that Paul viewed his apostleship. This was not some sort of status symbol, you know, where he wore, you know, Apostle Paul on his name badge. Um, That was not the case at all. But rather, he viewed himself as being the person that was able to actually go sent by Christ and to give people an uninterrupted view of Christ. For Paul, the most important thing was not what people saw in him, but that people saw Christ 
in him. That was the most important. And so it's Paul, apostle, called apostle of Jesus Christ. The of Jesus Christ, of course, he belongs wholly and completely to Jesus. In fact, the, um, the construction here is, is almost certainly the idea of possession. He belongs to Jesus Christ, which of course is why he refers to himself continually as a bond slave, as a doulos of Christ Jesus. And so he belongs to Christ, he's been sent by Christ, and I, I would say that probably, as we, as we look at this opening line, Paul is not trying to uh, throw his weight around as an apostle here. Paul is, is not actually, I think, I think, he is not just giving them a reminder of authority, I'm an apostle, you guys aren't. There will be a time for him to actually do that in dealing with the arrogance of the Corinthians. But it is actually simply, I think this, this simple is, I'm one who's been sent to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And what you see in me is just simply a living example of the power of Christ, the power of the gospel, and the power of the cross. And what that does for Paul is it doesn't puff him up, it actually humbles him because it's in the midst of that that he understands how his weakness and God's power work hand in hand. And notice this next part, through the will of God. So how does Paul become an apostle? Well, he's called for sure, but notice this emphasis through the will of God. Flip over to uh, Galatians real quick here. Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 1, the apostle gives us language that actually is reminiscent of an Old Testament text. Galatians chapter 1 verse 15, Paul writes, but... When God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. If there was anything that Paul was absolutely clear about, it is that he was an apostle and he was called simply because of the will of God. This was God's sovereign choice in Paul's life. It's not as if, you know, the the apostles were going around taking applications for new apostles. This is a demonstration of God's sovereign call, and it actually echoes Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 10, doesn't it? Where God actually tells Jeremiah that I have known you, and from the womb I have called you, and I'm going to put my words in your mouth, right? And of course, Jeremiah objects, but God actually tells him that he will be with him. And so there is this sense in which Paul, as he looked at his ministry, as he looked at his calling to to be a follower of Jesus, as he looked at his call to be an apostle, there was a sense in which he could say, you know what, at the end of the day, I had no say in the matter. This was all of God. That's why 
in chapter 9 and verse 16, he will say, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. This is what God has made me. This is what God has called me to do. And when did God plan it? God planned it way back. His hand was on me even in my mother's womb. And through those days of, of being a Pharisee and being a persecutor of the church and a blasphemer, guess what? God still had his plan. God still had his purpose. And at the appointed time, God's appointed time, God was pleased to reveal his son in me. So for for what reason? To preach the gospel to the Gentiles. I had no say in it. Now, here's here's the, the funny thing. For Paul, that's obvious. It should be obvious to us. But what is true of Paul on a smaller scale is also true of us, right? And you say, now hold on a second. I remember the night that I made a decision for Christ. And I'll say, that's great. That's great. But when you think about it, when you think about what you were before you were a Christian, when you think about who you were, when you think about the things that you loved, the things that you served, the things that you pursued, when it comes right down to it, guess who made that decision? It was Almighty God. It was Almighty God. And here's God, and he opens, he opens our eyes, he calls us, and in a sense, we think, you know, I remember I put my faith in Christ. I chose Christ. And then later on, we read our Bibles, and then we begin to realize, and you know what? God fixed my chooser first. Now, for Paul, Paul is, by the way, when he says through the will of God, you know what he's doing? He's saying that this, this ministry that I have, this apostleship, this call that I have, this, this was not me volunteering. This was not my choice in the matter. And so what Paul's doing is he's actually excluding all personal merit. There's no boast here in being an apostle. In fact, this is now going to end up being, uh, remember, everything that Paul's saying is, is going to be packed into this, this opening section, and it's going to be one way or another connected to what he says later. The status-hungry Corinthians who wanted to be recognized and wanted to be uh, uh, valued for their, quote, spirituality, who wanted to be, uh, you know, a big fish in a little pond. The Apostle Paul is saying right out of the gate, you know what? At the end of the day, there's no personal merit in my apostleship. There's no personal merit in my ministry. I am what I am by the grace of God which he will reiterate in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. I hope that you're able to say that. Attitudes of self-importance and self-exaltation and attitudes of self-promotion are always, always damaging to the church. We need people that just simply are able to say, you know what, I am what I am by the grace of God. I'm a follower of Jesus by the grace of God. Whatever gifts he's given me to serve come from his grace, and I am here to do his will. Now we have 
Paul, and then Sosthenes. Now, the, the, the Greek text actually just reads Sosthenes, the brother. And um, which I, I take that to mean, I, it's not wrong to translate it our brother, but I take it to mean that, that what Paul's doing is he's referring to somebody that the Corinthians know. The brother. Uh, and so Paul is including Sosthenes. Now, how much of 1 Corinthians is Sosthenes actually going to write? The answer is zero. Okay? This is all going to be Paul, as is demonstrated throughout the entire epistle. This is Paul writing this epistle. But what in the world is Paul doing by including Sosthenes, the brother? Well, remember, Paul oftentimes will include his ministry companions, right? Silas, Timothy, for instance, as those that are actually sending the letter. And I think that that Paul does this very intentionally. Paul is actually reminding the Corinthians that he is not just some maverick apostle who's out there on his own. He actually is a part of a team. He's actually involved with other people who are involved in the ministry. I was thinking about this today because it struck me. How many ministries do we have that are just called after a man? All kinds of them, right? And, you know, so we have, you know, Mr. X Ministries. I think for Paul, if somebody would have said, you know, Paul, your writings are doing really well. You know, Romans is on the top 10 in the New York Times bestseller list. Now, your preaching could use a little improvement, but people come to hear you. Why don't we do Paul ministries. I think Paul would have said, that's nonsense. I'm not in this by myself. I'm in this with other people. I'm in this as a team. I'm I'm in this together with these people that God has allowed me to co-labor with. So the question then becomes, who is Sosthenes? If you keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians, turn back to Acts chapter 18. I want to pose a theory. I say a theory because we don't know for sure. So you remember what happens? We looked at this two weeks ago. There is a synagogue president in Corinth by the name of Crispus. Well, guess what? He gets converted, right? Now, this, this, of course, is not going to make the Jewish people at the synagogue very happy that the Jewish synagogue president or leader gets converted, all right? There's a person who succeeds Crispus by the name of Sosthenes. He actually becomes the next ruler of the synagogue, the synagogue president. Now, if you look... Um, so uh, Gallio is, uh, is hearing the, the Jews, uh, this man's persuading men to worship God contrary to the law, and um, Paul is about to say something, Gallio couldn't care less, right? It's like, I, I don't care about your law and about your theology, your doctrine, 
And so I was unwilling, uh, I'm unwilling to hear these matters. And then notice verse 16. And he, that is Gallio, drove them, that is the Jews and Paul, and away from the judgment seat. And then notice verse 17. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Now, what is, what is interesting is that Luke doesn't tell us anything about Sosthenes other than two things. One, he was the new leader of the synagogue. And two, he was getting the tar beat out of him in front of Gallio, and Gallio couldn't care less. Okay. Now, it seems that what happens is, as the Jews bring their complaint, there's, there's Sosthenes. Why do you think they would lay hold of Sosthenes and begin beating on him. We don't know for sure, but what we could probably venture to say somewhat safely is that Sosthenes may well have been somewhat sympathetic to Paul. Where's the church meeting at this point? Right next door. Right next door. And so, do you, think, do you think Paul is going out of his way to evangelize another synagogue president? Absolutely. I would imagine that they probably laid hold of him for one of two reasons. Either one, he had shown some sympathies towards Paul, or had actually already become a Christian. Well, from this event in Acts 18 to 1 Corinthians, the writing of 1 Corinthians, there is a span of probably four to five years. I think that this, in all likelihood that the Sosthenes that's mentioned here is mentioned here because, one, the Corinthians knew him. And how did the Corinthians knew, know him? The Corinthians knew him as the one who had actually suffered for the sake of the gospel. And now, for whatever reason, he's in Ephesus with Paul as Paul is writing First Corinthians. And Paul includes him as a brother that the Corinthians would have known and who would have respected as much as the Corinthians could respect anybody. Richard Hayes says, if he was a notable Corinthian convert who had suffered for the gospel, he might have been a person of influence among the Corinthian Christians. And so Paul says, here's this letter, and it's coming from me and Sosthenes, the brother. Okay? So that's the, those are the senders, Paul and Sosthenes. Now let's look at the recipient. Verse 2. Two the church of God, which is at Corinth, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. It's hard to tell. We don't know for sure, but it's very probable, highly probable, that there would have been a number of house churches in Corinth. In other words, there would have been a number of assemblies in the city. Okay? Uh, even, even in the case where you had a patron who was a wealthy uh, householder, um, you know, 40 to 100 would have been about the max. We don't know how many believers there were in Corinth, but there were probably a number of churches. Now, when Paul writes the letter to the Galatians, guess what he says? To the churches 
which are in Galatia. But here, this is different. It's singular, to the church of God, which is in Corinth. And I would suggest that the singular use of church here is actually uh, emphasizing the unity of the church in Corinth, or at least the unity that is supposed to exist in the church at Corinth. And so Paul does not address churches, plural, in the case of many house churches that would have had many leaders, but rather Paul is emphasizing the unity of the church. Notice it is the church of what? It's the church of God. The church of God. No doubt this is the idea of a a possessive. It is God's church. It belongs to God. God started it. God preserves it. It is his church. Anthony Thistleton says the church, Paul insists, belongs not to the wealthy or to patrons or to some self-styled inner circle of spiritual people who manifest gifts, but to God. One of the things that people will say from time to time, and they don't mean they don't mean anything bad by it, but they'll say something like, "So, how many people go to your church?" Okay. And people talk like this all the time. Even pastors will talk like this. You know, uh, oh, so and so goes to so and so's church, right? I think Paul would have been meticulous enough to correct us when we said things like that. Because for Paul, the church was not, um, was not the church of the elders at Corinth, and it was super spiritual at Corinth. It was the church of God. It was God's church. And it is a good reminder to us, and in fact, this very expression, by the way, church of God, is a reflection of an Old Testament expression for the assembly of Israel. Ecclesia is an assembly that gathers together as a congregation, in this case, in the presence of God. And so, notice, it exists in Corinth. Think about it this way. The church exists thousands and thousands and thousands of locations, of locales. So, in a real sense, we would be one of the churches of God in Nevada or one of the churches of God in the Carson Valley or one of the churches of God. We would be a part of the church that exists here, right here. Now, is, is Paul being intentional about this? And the answer is, absolutely. He is, he is going to remind them, you guys aren't the only ones. You guys are not the only ones. They're, they're actually, there are churches everywhere. And the fact is, is that you're just the one in Corinth. Again, a good reminder. Then notice what he says, how he describes them. He says, having been sanctified in Christ Jesus. 
So this is how he describes to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those, this is a description of the church, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, how sanctified were the Corinthians? (laughs) On a a sanctification scale from 1 to 10, 10 being perfection in heaven, I think that as far as what we would call progressive sanctification... The Corinthians were probably a a negative two at this point. They are not doing well. But notice what Paul does. Paul actually says to those, is there anything about the tense that captures your attention? Have been sanctified. It's actually perfect tense. The idea is, is that this has already been completed. It's already been accomplished. In fact, what the tense does is the tense actually tells us that there was a sanctification which was completed that has continuing results. Paul is reminding them of who they are. And of course, sanctified is to be holy This is, again, echoes of the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.2. God tells his people, you shall be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. And so Paul's telling this, this Corinthian assembly, listen, you are the assembly, you are the, the church of God, and you have already been sanctified in Christ Jesus. And you ask yourself, how in the world can Paul say that about people that he's going to turn around and in chapter 3 tell them that they're still fleshly? The answer is this very expression, in Christ Jesus. Their sanctification is an accomplished fact by virtue of their union with Jesus Christ. In fact, Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.30, is their sanctification. And in fact, Paul will put it in the past tense in 1 Corinthians 6.11, you have been sanctified. And I I take this to simply mean that, that when a person becomes a believer in Jesus, that there is something that happens definitively in their life that can rightfully be called sanctification because to be sanctified is in fact to be set apart. And so if they are in union with Christ, they have, they have now been, what? They have died to sin, right? Now, does that mean that, that they've stopped sinning? And the answer is clearly no, right? Being dead to sin should mean that we don't live in it anymore, right? How can you who have died to sin, Paul says to the Romans, still live in it? Okay? So in other words, this is not the way it should be. So they're, they're in bad shape, but Paul does not back away for a minute from affirming the fact that they actually have been definitively sanctified in Christ. Now, do they have a long ways to go on progress in sanctification? And the answer is a resounding yes. But here, you, you want to know what the Christian life looks like? Here it is. You have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, so go on being sanctified in Christ Jesus. 
The Christian life can be summed up in simply learning and growing and becoming more and more of who we already are. One of these days, we'll be perfectly sanctified. We call that glorification. There'll be no more growth as far as our conformity to the image of Christ. But between conversion and death or the Lord's return, there's supposed to be progress. But what Paul is emphasizing is that Jesus has done something definitively for you right now, O Corinthian church. Right? And, and so... He, Let's say you're sitting here tonight and you you feel like you probably would fit right in with First Baptist Church of Corinth. You say, you know what? My life is a mess. It's not what it should be. Paul will get to that. But he also assures that those who are in, who are in Christ Jesus have been sanctified. Okay? So that means there's hope, Right? There's hope. (laughs) Now, if that doesn't blow you away, the next part will. NAS says saints by calling. Texture says called saints. So, remember I said what was true of Paul is also true of us. How do I know that? Because he just says that he's called an apostle. The Corinthians are called saints. Saints doesn't mean they're called by like being named saints. It means that they're called like Paul was called and they are saints. Now, that means that the gospel came to them in the power of the spirit and called them into God's kingdom. Paul's going to actually give us this picture in 1 Corinthians 1, 9 that we're actually called into fellowship with God through his son Christ. So there's a sense in which, as a believer, you are called, same effectual call here. By the way, this idea of calling is going to play so large right in the very first chapter, but it's this next, it's this next word. New American Standard says, saints. So you know the Pope was in America today. The, <laughs> he had a goal, many goals, I'm sure, but one of them was to canonize Father Sarah, who was responsible for numerous missions up and down the California coast. Okay? Now, in that tradition, if you're canonized, that's what's required to be a saint. You have to be dead and three verifiable miracles to your account. Which seems the more time passes, that seems maybe like easier. So if you've been dead for 300 years or so, so he canonizes a saint. Paul actually tells the Corinthians, you're saints. He does not mean you've been canonized by the so-called vicar of Christ. What he means is the ones in Christ. So, just a quiz. How many saints do we have here tonight? Okay. So there's Saint Vic. 
I don't recommend going by these titles. There's Saint, Saint Steve. There's Saint Eric, right? Saint Molly and Saint Molly. Saint Rick. Saint Carrie. Saint Brian. It has a ring to it. I like it. Now, here's the thing. Is that if you're in Christ, you're a saint. Why? Not because, you know, even the way that we use it, you know, it's like Gene Strachan is such a saint. All right? We, we normally say that in connection with the context of her life. All right? And I'll just leave it there. But... We don't, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about somebody that's displayed extraordinary grace. We're not talking about somebody that's displayed extraordinary patience or endurance. What we're talking about is simply this. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have been made holy by virtue of your union with Christ, and you're a saint. Period. And so here are the Corinthians who are not very saintly, who are called saints, now, or sanctified ones, if you prefer, or holy ones. And so, how in the world does Paul say that to them? Well, first of all, as God's people, they have been set apart for God as his holy people for his holy purpose. So if you are a saint, a holy one in Christ Jesus, what that means is that God has set you apart for himself and for his purpose, which means you don't live for yourself anymore. Holy ones who have been set apart for God now live unto God. What that means, you you know, you talk about rubbing the Corinthians the wrong way right from the get-go. I mean, here here are people that had their own agendas. They had their own self-promotion going on. And Paul is reminding them, you're holy ones. You've been set apart for God and for his purposes. You exist for him. You don't exist for yourself. You don't exist for your own agenda. You don't exist for your own pleasure. You don't exist for anything other than the purpose of God and for what he's called you to do. But sanctified also would denote a certain kind of lifestyle. A lifestyle that is set apart. A lifestyle that's different than the world's. A lifestyle in which there is holiness of heart and holiness of life and holiness of community. And guess at what two points the Corinthians were failing miserably living for God's purpose and God's agenda and actually being holy in life and community. Now, do you think Paul is just being really nice? Or do you think there is a strategy in reminding them who they are? He is absolutely reminding them who they are. Sometimes that's exactly what it takes to bring us to repentance and to get us moving in the right direction is simply remembering who we are in Christ Jesus. Years ago, there was a a young lady that I knew and 
I noticed that she'd been avoiding me. And when I finally um, found out why, it's because she was uh, living with her boyfriend. She didn't want me to know. And so I met with her. And I told her, you are either a fornicator or a Christian. But you can't be both. You can't be both. And so you need to make up your mind as to what you really are. Now I know what you have said you are. If that's what you are, then live like it. Live like it. This is what Paul's going to get down to with the Corinthians. He's going to remind them, this, this is what you are. This is, this is what you claim to be. This is, this is what Christ has done for you. How in the world can you, can you go down this path when your identity isn't that, but it's this? You're the church of God. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called. You're saints. All this division and immorality and, and all of these things, that's, that's not who you are in Christ. Be who you really are. And that's a word for us at all times, is it not? We should, we should not be like the chameleon that just changes colors depending on who we're around. We should be people who are increasingly becoming more and more of who we already are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for for this letter. We thank you for the Apostle Paul, your servant. But most of all, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who has set us apart, who has saved us, who has washed us, cleansed us, sanctified us. Father, we pray that we would, that we would take our calling seriously. We pray, Father, that we, would, that we would be committed to being who we really are. Father, we pray for those that are, that are struggling with this, even tonight. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come to them and minister to them and help them. Father, we thank you that you love us. Father, even, even in spite of ourselves, we're confident that you love us because of Christ. And so we pray that you would complete the work which you've begun. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.